Welcome back to FYI, the four-year institution podcast presented by Mongoose. I am your host, Gil Rogers, and today I am joined by the always engaging, informative, interesting to connect with and talk to founder and CEO of Ease Learning, Lori Polito. Lori, we before we dive in, I would love for you to share a little bit about your background for listeners who may be meeting you for the first time. And I think we're going to have a really engaging conversation today about some of the work that you've done. So before we dive into any of that, I kick it to you to introduce yourself and connect with our audience. Sure. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me. So a little background. My background has always been education. And I say that because I consider myself first and foremost an educator more so than CEO. That was kind of an accidental title that I earned over time. I started off my career as a teacher in an inner city of all places, kind of fascinated with how people learn, how actually even how people acquire language. The students that I had were non-native English speakers. So I think it was making sure that learning was accessible to all people, no matter what, that got me hooked. And that somehow translated into online learning over time. That's amazing. And we're going to get into that deeper as we go. One point of context for everyone who is listening to this podcast, I actually have the privilege of serving as a marketing advisor for Ease Learning, as well as being the host of the FYI podcast. So Lori and I have connected many, many times over the past few weeks on a number of topics and conversations. And what we're going to talk about today specifically is a recent blog post that you put together titled The Five Reasons Why BEI is Important to the Learning Design Process. And as we were going through the work to put that together, I said, this is the type of stuff that the FYI audience should really be talking about and listening to and being a part of that conversation. So before we dive into the specifics of that article, you mentioned, you know, teaching in inner cities and those sorts of items. I'd love for you to share a little bit of your perspective, as well as helping to define for this audience, what is a learning design for a lot of folks who might work in enrollment management or marketing or admissions or other areas, they might have heard the term, but they might want to be educated a little bit more about the process of learning design. You know, it's really interesting. In writing one of my recent blogs, I started researching the origins of learning design. And interestingly enough, designing learning in the context of online learning, which is my main focus now in the role that I'm in, has its origins in the mid to late 90s. Specifically, it's credited to someone who worked at Apple. The idea of user experience started to emerge with the technologies that came about to really make access to online content ubiquitous. Learning theory and thinking about designing learning goes back 60 or 70 years, but thinking about it in the context of online learning and making it accessible to people in that way It has really morphed into something more like learning experience design, which is thinking about a human-centered approach to learning, thinking about how do you make learning relatable to people and orient them towards goals, but then doing that in a browser and doing that on a device where there is a web 
element to it. So it's really learning experience design as opposed to instructional design. It's kind of taken on this whole realm of how do we present something on a screen that somebody can learn from? And how do we drive them towards goals that we have set for them in their learning? So it's kind of morphed over time, but there's a definite connection to what learning is as it pertains to technology. And I think that's going to be somewhat turbocharged in the next few years when you start thinking about what does AI do to this? And then how do we start thinking about what is that doing towards design of learning? So yeah, super interesting. We could do a whole separate section on that, but the origins of learning design actually are fairly new. We could do a whole separate series and podcasts specifically on AI. And I reserve the right to pull you back in for another episode as that comes to be. And your insights there will be invaluable for this type of work. Speaking of your insights, you want to get back to that personal story you mentioned briefly during the open around why DEI is at the center of how Ease goes about doing its work. I'd love for you to share a little bit about your perspective there. Yeah, I mean... I was kind of brief in my background intro a little bit on the origins of being a teacher and whatnot. But even before that, when I was still a college student, I studied abroad. I lived in Austria and I studied at the university there. And while I was there, I was teaching English to various people because I was a native speaker. This concept of native speaker made me very important to some people who really wanted to make their English more proficient. And When you live in in another country and you are the outsider, you have this interesting perspective of how people think of you, your past, your culture, your history, what you're bringing as an American into their world. And I think it just changed the way I think about what it means to interact with people, especially around learning with a variety of different backgrounds and how do you make things relatable and relevant and even when you're speaking multiple languages, how do you get on common ground, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're designing learning, you have to think about where is somebody coming from and how are they relating to what it is that you're teaching and how you're presenting this material to them. So that lens has always been really strong for me. And I think it's from those experiences of having to walk in somebody else's shoes that kind of made me super hyper aware of that. So when we thought about how to design learning at Ease Learning, without a doubt, those experiences played very heavily, as well as my early teaching years, Mm -hmm. played very heavily into thinking about how to make things relatable. And that word, you're going to see that word in the blog that you're referring to. And in all of our discussions, our DEI rubric is just how do you give everybody a voice? How do you really make them feel like The learning has to do with them, that it's for them, that it relates to them, that it's important for them. Because without that, you're lacking motivation. And I think Mm -hmm. if you really want people to be successful, the origins of student success can be found in being relatable and motivating students to be engaged. Right. So it all kind of hangs together if you think about it like that. Yeah. Yeah. We recorded an episode of this podcast during Mongoose's client summit a couple of weeks ago at the probably a month ago at this point, time flies when you're having fun. But the point around inclusivity came up rather frequently during that conversation. This is the context of the student experience. And the phrase that the guest brought up was, you know, fitting in does not necessarily equate belonging, right? And there's a certain aspect of that where we need to expand 
our thinking as the instructors and as the people who are supporting the student's experience, because if that student is constantly having to change who they are to fit into the mold or the process that is around them versus a process that understands and invites their perspectives, that's a significantly different experience. And you look at it from a student recruitment and a student retention and persistence perspective, it's one thing for the admissions department to have a specific initiative to get underserved students or low-income students or students with learning differences to enroll at the institution. It's another thing for the institution to be able to support those students once they're actually there and driving better outcomes from their work. So I would love to, you know, in that vein for you to kind of share some highlights and for our podcast listeners, we'll put a link to the blog post that we're talking about in the episode notes. So you'll be able to review that as well. Don't start reading until after we're done talking about it, though. That's the rule. Uh, Lori, I'd love for you to kind of share some of the highlights from the article on the ways that are outlined there that, that institutions can implement today in their work to make sure the DEI is at the forefront in their learning design process. Absolutely. I just want to start by saying one thing before I jump into the individual kind of concepts in the specific article. There's a lot of discussion around DEI and it's been very politicized and somewhat, I even would say, weaponized. From my lens, looking at it as someone who creates learning and who wants to invite success for all learners, right? My goal is to think about the equity part of DEI and think about what does that mean, right? What does it mean to be equitable? And it means really trying to understand where somebody is coming from. Not that everything is equal, but that we're really trying to understand what someone's starting point is and make everything accessible to them the best way we can. There is definitely an inclusivity that helps us do that. And just by nature of trying to make it more relatable, make learning more inviting and bring people in, you are without a doubt having to face, you know, is there a power dynamic here that might cause an alienation that you're not meaning to cause? I just find it really interesting that the world has become so divisive around the phrase DEI when the objectivity of wanting everybody to be successful in their learning is actually not a no-brainer. So I just want to say, when we look at the statistics, when we look at how certain students are without a doubt not getting the equity around education, I just find it divisive for somebody to weaponize this, right? Or to even ban the words. I mean, like some states have actually gone as far as to do that. And for the betterment of the entire society, we need education. So for me, education is a way of fixing the world's problems. So I'm hoping that sharing these methodologies and sharing a lens on DEI, where really what we're aiming for is student success, and it's nothing divisive, it's actually the right thing to do. I'm hoping that some of these strategies can be used for good. So I just wanted to say that because I think it's really important in today's climate. For sure. Thank you for level setting the conversation with that as the goal, because I think, you know, in in all things gold before tools, right? And I think any reasonable person could align on that as a center to the conversation. You would think so. I use the term reasonable, right? Let's raise awareness around the fact that education is supposed to be creating access to things for people. And when somebody goes to weaponize something like DEI, they're probably trying to deliberately keep other people from not getting the education that they need. So 
let's just use that as a, a what, a what you're off to do. Yep. So on the topic of what the five things are that help us put DEI in the lens of learning and how we should be thinking about this, what are the key takeaways, things that you kind of must have? I focused the article on relatability, integration, modality, activity, and accessibility. And I can give you kind of a brief summary of where I was going with some of that. The way somebody learns is at the center of all of this. To get somebody to learn something, you have to kind of know, well, what do they know already? What I actually liken this sometimes to a closet. And if you're going to hang something new in your closet, you have shelves, you have hangers, you have places where you put things, right? And your ability to know where to hang something new is based on how you have your closet organized in the first place, right? If I hand you a sweater, you might have a shelf for the sweater and with all the other sweaters, right? You have what we in cognitive terms call schema, but that's a big word, right? But what that really means is that you have some way from your background, from your experience in your lifetime of organizing things, the way you think about things. And your ability to relate to something new and hold it up against what you know, maybe standing in front of your closet, hold it up against all the other items in your closet and say, well, where does this fit? Is your ability to A, relate to it and B, integrate it. If you can't go through that process, if it feels foreign to you, if it doesn't feel like something that's relatable to you or that you can see that's important to you in some way, shape or form, you're kind of lacking motivation to integrate it. It's kind of like, well, this doesn't really make sense in my world and this isn't really meant for me and I don't see myself in this picture. And that would force you to just kind of remove yourself altogether or stop out or drop out Mm -hmm. or not partake, not engage, perform poorly, all of these things, right? So there is a kind of an obligation for a good instructor to want to be making sure that relatable and integratable concepts are out there in a format that somebody is going to be able to come to in a way that's going to make them successful, right? And then that gets into kind of modality, activity, and accessibility, which are more like, well, how am I shaping this for them to be able to interact with it, with each other, with concepts, the instructor, with peers, with the content? What does that look like? I think one of the most important things on that level is activity. When we talk to somebody and tell them things and they're not actually experiencing any of it themselves, whether it's a lecture or a video or reading something, it's very passive. The way human beings learn is through their senses, through interaction and through different levels of engagement of all of their senses, right? So when we choose a modality, when we choose the level of activity, We want to put them in the driver's seat as much as we can because it's through the experience with something that it really resonates and becomes their own. And that's kind of what the learning process is supposed to be. So when you open that up in online learning, you have a multitude of ways to do this. And I just think about my teenage son in virtual reality. He loves VR. He loves coding VR. He loves playing VR. It's so immersive. And it's a great example of you kind of can't avoid being at the center of something in that modality, right? Right. We can't create everything that way, but we can certainly aim to tap into as many different senses as we possibly can to make sure that we're 
reaching as many people in a really meaningful experiential way. And that increases the likelihood that you're going to resonate and be sticky with what it is you're teaching. So I think those things kind of play off of each other. And it's really having all five of those things in front of mind when you embark on designing learning. And to me, this is just good learning design, but it has a huge impact on DEI. I guess if I was going to sprinkle one more ingredient into this, and our rubric focuses heavily on this, it's voice. Drawing attention to who has the voice, who has the authority to be speaking. And I always think of Lord of the Flies for this, which is so funny, but when they wanted somebody to have the voice, they gave them the conch shell. And that meant you were the one speaking, like that you were the leader of the conversation. If we don't offer the conch shell to the students in the room at some point in time, they're not feeling like they're a part of the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to think of ways in our activities to invite them to have that voice. It really does go a long way at making people feel bought in, heard, participating, and ultimately seeing themselves as somebody who owns this knowledge. Mm -hmm. I would add another ingredient, and that would be to the very top that you mentioned around desire, right? Before you could do any of this, there needs to be alignment and a desire to actually do it. But you hit the nail on the head that I feel like at some point, regardless if it's a focus or an emphasis on DEI or not, like you mentioned, this is just good learning design practice in general, right? And so it's if you're doing these things well, it's part of a broader process. And the term that comes to mind that I've, you know, we've talked about and we've seen, we put in articles as well, is this concept of backward design. And I would, yeah. I'd love for you to, again, for our audience, help kind of define what that is from a process perspective. So as they're going through these exercises on their campus, it's something they can maybe leverage and incorporate. Sure. So backwards design is exactly what it's called. It's thinking about the end first and then designing towards that. It's understanding the outcomes we want. What do we want students to be able to do? And I I linger on that for a reason because there's what we want them to know, but then there's what we want them to actually do with that. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole deeper level, right? And to me, really good design, really good backward design is not just what we want them to know. We're not just covering the material, which I hate. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll cover that next week. No, that's not really giving somebody the gift of knowing how to do something, which I think is a far greater, it should be the goal, is not Mm -hmm. only making them knowledgeable, but knowledge able. They can take it and do something with it. That's what they're coming for. That's what they're paying tuition for. They want to be able to go out and do something real with this, right? So I think we have an obligation to make that happen. And I think we do that through really good learning experiences back to our, how do you design? You design for experiences that are going to help them be able to apply what they've learned. But I wanted to just say one other thing about motivation. It's interesting that you were putting it first. And I would say from a marketing and enrollment standpoint, from an outward facing, you know, lead gen, looking for students, recruiting students perspective, you've got them, you've got them enrolled, you've got them in a course. If you don't engage them properly, their motivation will dwindle. Mm -hmm. So they were motivated for whatever reason to click, to sign up, to show up, assuming now they're in a course or a program of study. Now we have to keep them engaged and graduate them. And this is, to me, this is the 
element of motivation is not just what they have to come with. It's something that we need to continually keep making sure that we're resonating throughout that journey. And that is very much why designing and using DEI in the design matters. And I think that's why you see a huge disparity in persistence and who is persisting and who is not. Absolutely. And I think it boils down to the customer service aspect and the fulfillment of the product that's sold, right? And the admissions process, the students are involved in it. They're tailored to, they're catered to, they're supported at each phase. And then there's, once they're on campus, what is that experience? What's, what, is there a disconnect between, because the expectation that is then created for that process permeates through their experience on campus. And if they're kind of just dropped at that point, then to your point, persistence drops from there. And there's data everywhere we can look at for the different types of students and who is, who's persisting and what challenges that they're facing. And again, that's a whole nother webinar topic or podcast topic that we could do on persistence by audiences and what we need to do to best support those students. So that is extremely helpful. I want to make sure we also find time during this conversation to help school institutions actually do some of this. And I think it's not a who's got the highest score type element. You have to do all of these things. I think doing something is better than doing nothing. Doing all of these things right out of the gate may be a little challenging for some institutions. And it's about making iterative, positive, forward momentum on a number of fronts. I know Ease has a number of resources. You've mentioned the rubric and a a number of others. I'd I'd love for you to share some resources that institutions might seek out to help with implementing this type of work. Yeah, I think there's a few things. I mean, the rubric is definitely meant to be downloaded and applied for anybody who wants to access it. You can find it on our website. I'm sure we can provide that link today. Absolutely. I think it's also important to note that the rubric is set up in a way where it follows our design process. It follows the backward design methodology. It starts with outcomes and it progresses through assessment, through what the experience is to get outcomes and assessment to kind of meld together. We are measuring this learning in a way that is telling us whether or not these outcomes have been met. And we think about different aspects of DEI along that design process. So it was originally intended to kind of be out on your desk while you're designing learning, but it can also be used as an audit mechanism. One of the other really important aspects is to keep a neutrality around reviewing programs, reviewing courses and have almost a third-party lens, if you will, on doing that. We actually do provide that as a service. But I think what enables us to do that is that we have a team of very strong learning designers. And it's imperative whether you have someone internally in that role or you outsource that role. Designing learning is a very specific skill set. And it is somebody who has that lens around thinking about backward design, thinking about process, and being able to apply a methodology during that time where they're not looking at content knowledge. That's really something reserved for subject matter experts. But they're able to be more neutral in their view of how the learning is playing out and who the audience is and whether or not that experience that is being designed is ticking the boxes in this way. 
We do the same thing as a lens for universal design for learning. And we look at accessibility in a similar way. And we're able to just approach it in a very kind of systematic way. That science of learning design is really well-equipped to ensure that some of these best practices are baked into what the experience is. So I would highly encourage that somebody is in that role during that phase of development. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one thing I would add is earlier this season on FYI, we had a conversation with Leanne Sanhing about inequity on college campuses. And one of the things that she had brought up was the fact that most institutions have their heart in the right place when it comes to addressing inequity. They want to implement processes. They want to focus on and support students. The reality is they just sometimes have a hard time of detecting their own biases and uncovering their own biases. Because in that type of a process, you don't believe that you have the bias, but it's in that process somewhere. And so you mentioned you know, looking at things from a third-party perspective when it comes to doing these types of audits. I would challenge institutions to say, that may not be work you want to do by yourself. That is that you should try to incorporate. And it can be easy, it can be others, doesn't matter. The reality is that you need to incorporate that third-party lens if you want it done right. Because that third-party lens is going to be the lens that challenges your perceptions and challenges the institutional processes in a way that I feel like internal parties may not be able to by themselves. So it's just a point there. As you mentioned, we will put a link to the DEI rubric by ease in the episode notes. And for those who haven't listened to the prior episode, we'll put a link to the conversation. It was titled Admissions Denied Inequity on College Campuses from earlier this season from FYI. So some additional resources to help with furthering of this conversation. So with that in mind, you know, I'm talking about staying connected and understand and keeping in touch. Lori, what are some ways that people can connect and stay in touch with you after listening to this podcast today? Yeah, sure. So the most obvious way, I'm happy to share directly my contact information. You can also find me on LinkedIn. You can certainly come to our website which is easelearning.com. And we'd be happy to set up a call, learn what your issues are, and maybe propose some solutions for you. Awesome. And I will say from firsthand experience, Lori is worth a follow on LinkedIn. Get in touch there. She shares some great articles and commentary almost every single day. So I think you've got a good opportunity to learn something and connect there for sure. Lori, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you to our audience for joining us and we will see you next time on FYI. Bye-bye. 